0: Bibles with me to 2nd Timothy, chapter 2, verses 20 through 26, 2nd Timothy, chapter 2, verses 20 through 26, and I'm going to read aloud while you follow along in your Bibles. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. So we come to this passage for a number of different reasons, one of which is that it's been ministering to my soul a lot of late. And uh, I think it is a, a question that often comes to the mind of many believers. As Doug had said earlier, we are in a dark and fallen world. And often, I found myself and those around me, those that I love and those that I seek to counsel, they come and they ask, what do I do in this situation? And so, I want to open up before us this text, where Paul seeks to answer a question that I think is imperative for us to understand. Now, we jump in in the middle of a context. This doesn't come from nowhere, but rather this is in the middle of Paul's second letter to Timothy. Now Timothy at this point has been a pastor in the church of Ephesus. He's working in the church of the Ephesians. And Paul has up to this point been writing to Timothy about how he needs to conduct himself in the house of God. Particularly what he needs to do in regards to the false teaching that seems to just be infectious In the body of Christ that he is working in. In the local church. So he's walked him through up to this point. On how to think about these false teachers. How to respond to these false teachers. What he is meant to do. In order to address it. And here we come to this summarization. Of what he's been teaching up until now. And this section ends. uh, Just prior to the verses that we're approaching. Where Paul reminds Timothy of something extraordinarily essential. As he's going through a quite disheartening experience. As he's watching false teaching on the rise. People from the body of the church leaving, rejecting and renouncing the name of Christ. Paul reminds him of this. He tells Timothy that it is God who knows who are his. And that he will reveal who are his. That no matter the false teaching that Timothy perceives, it is always the Lord's sovereign hand. The Lord's sovereign hand that will hold his own. And so now we move into this next question. And Paul begins to describe to Timothy, what does it look like to be found faithful? What does it mean for Timothy to be used of God as an instrument to be sent as a minister of reconciliation? This is where we find ourselves today, and as we admit, there are many things around us that are quite similar to Timothy's uh, situation. Let's say a co-worker is believing and spouting heresies while claiming to be a believer. A child or a family member claims to be a believer and yet has no desire for, reflection of, nor fruit of the Lord's work in their heart. A group of our Christian fellowship speaks of Christ out of one side of their mouth, and yet are a brood of gossiping, slanderers, or wicked busybodies when they gather together. Have you ever wondered what it looks like? What must I do to be found as a faithful witness among the lost and my enemies? What does it look like in the context of parenting, in employment, in citizenship, in friendships, and in marriage? This is what Paul says. Verse 20 Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. So Paul tells us very clearly that as long as we're in a broken world, even the church will experience this brokenness. There will be people within the local body, he says, who are honorable, who are sound, faithful, teachers used greatly of God. And there will be those who are dishonorable. He uses the imagery of a house filled with varying vessels. Think like dishes or containers. And in God's house, the church, there are going to be both beautiful dishes, refined, valuable vessels that are useful to God. And then in the same house, there will be vessels that are nearly worthless. So without their permission, I'm going to use Carmen and Dustin. There are Carmen and Dustin in my home. We're going to eat a lovely soup that my wife has been making. It smells delicious. Dustin brings these fresh, homemade, still hot, like with yeast and everything kind of rolls. Everything smells delicious and looks delicious, and my wife looks at me. And she says, oh, honey, could you grab a serving dish for the salad that I've prepared? I say, I would love to. I'd be happy to. So I turn, and I walk over, and I grab our garbage can. And I unclip it and I pull out the half-full dripping bag and I set it down. I kind of scratch off the crusty old food that's still hanging on to the side as it drops into this dirty refuse bucket. And I take my wife's fancy salad that she has prepared and I pour it in to the trash can and set it atop our table. Yes or no? No. Why are you able to say no way? Because in a house there are vessels for use. And there are vessels that in order to bring out in front of guests, in order to actually seek to serve someone with, it would be obscene. And this is exactly Paul's point. He says to Timothy, there are going to be in God's house, the local church, there will be some who are extraordinarily useful, and some who have in essence made themselves worthless. They will have bowed to or even be proclaiming false teaching. In verses 18 and 19, this is actually a point he very well makes. And so Paul writes in the sense that Peter does in 2 Peter 1. When he describes that one must, what one must do if they desire to actually be found useful to the Lord. A vessel of honor. And so we need to ask, what does that look like? We would assume that anyone in Christ, our desire would be to be useful. We have been made new. We have been bought by the blood of Christ. We have been forgiven our sin and debt. Our life is now purchased by the precious blood of Christ. Made perfect and holy in his sight. Now my life is not my own. So what does it look like? When it doesn't seem like God is going to get glory in a situation. What must I do? Well, Paul tells us. And he starts by saying this. Verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now it's important to wonder what is he referring to? What does he mean in order to cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable? What is Timothy to do? This is referring to the vessels of dishonor that were mentioned just in the previous verse. Those who wish to be found and useful to the master are to separate themselves from what is dishonorable. This means that they are both to indoctrine what we believe and in their moral living, how we live, they are to cleanse themselves from those who are false teachers and their erroneous doctrines. Those who wish to be useful to the Lord are those who are being cleansed, according to Paul. That brings me to my first point. Those who wish to be useful to God are those who are being cleansed in what they believe and therefore how they live. So the first step of our Apostle Paul is that those who are useful are being cleansed. They're not engaging in the empty and false teachings of the false teachers. They're refusing to live in the worthless worldly ways that these false teachers would encourage. And Paul tells Timothy here that one's usefulness to the Lord is directly associated with his personal walk with the Lord. One who is being cleansed is one who is being made useful. And with this he gives this incredible promise he says that those who do so will be useful to the master, ready for every good work. They will be able to experience what we read of in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. That by the word of God, we can be equipped, ready for every good work. They will be able to walk out their purpose in life, which we read in Ephesians two ten, is that we were created for Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Well, that sounds all nice and well, Paul. We get that. That's what we're trying to do. That's sur- surely what Timothy is trying to do as a, a faithful young preacher amongst the, the craziness at Ephesus. And so Paul does something that I love about the epistles. is He gets specific. He gets very specific about what this looks like practically. What does it look like to love and follow the Lord? To actually seek to cleanse oneself from the false teaching that he's writing directly against. And so Paul continues on into verse 22. And he says this. So flee. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith. Love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Point two. Those who wish to be useful to God are those who are being cleansed. How is this done? By fleeing from sin and pursuing the Lord. What does it look to like to cleanse himself, as Timothy, from moral and doctrinal false teaching? He is to flee. And pursue with this description of flee and pursue, Paul actually gives us a very common biblical teaching that following Christ is not merely an avoidance of what is bad, rather we are to avoid that which is evil by running after pursuing that which is righteous, lovely, good, beautiful. In the New Testament, we see this principle called the put off and put on process. We read of it in ephesians four twenty two through twenty four Colossians 3, 9. You see, one cannot flee without pursuing something in its stead. For we are even told that in order to overcome evil, one must overcome it with good. With every flight, there is a pursuit. And this is what Paul directs Timothy toward. It is only by finding a greater and more beautiful love That a heart is able to begin rejecting its false gods. Now, this is not bootstrap theology, as I like to call it, meaning that we're just to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and merely do better. Nowhere in Paul's mind is that what he's calling for us to do, and we can tell that because three out of the four virtues that he lists are, in fact, fruits of the Spirit, found in Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23. He's not calling Timothy to do anything alone. Rather, he is calling him to do what the Spirit of God is already at work in doing in him. It's rather clear by what Paul says in Philippians 2, 12-13. That the believer is to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. Both to work and will according to his good pleasure. So Paul is not merely telling him to toughen up. Rather, he tells him by the power of the Holy Spirit as he has been made new. Flee and pursue. This is quite an urgent tone to it. One commentator says it like this. Paul uses the word from which we get fugitive. It is here a present imperative of a command. Indicating that fleeing is not optional. But is to be persistent and constant. It has the sense and would be used of what would be said of one running for their life. It would be used to describe the fleeing of prey. This is the type of fleeing that would be done by a hunted animal. It's not merely a hard run, but it's the very sprint for one's life from the teeth of a pursuing lion. This should not surprise us, should it? Since we have already been instructed and warned that there is indeed a roaring lion. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Indeed, we're even warned that there are ravenous wolves that would be raised up amongst us in Acts 20, verse 29. Those who are in Christ are indeed a people who by their very nature are hunted. We see in Revelation 12:13 through 17 that we have been a people hunted by Satan himself since the ascension of Christ and the establishment of the church. Side note, I wonder how often and in what ways my daily walk would look different if I would only cease living as if I were a king in a safe haven, rather realize myself to be a rabbit in the den of hyenas. What would my walk with the Lord differ from today? Yet, here it's not Satan that Paul is calling Timothy to flee from. If you notice, it's rather, he tells Timothy that the very danger lives in his own heart. He says, flee from youthful passions. Run as if you are being hunted by them, for they dwell within your midst. These, we know, come from nowhere but our own hearts, as we see in James chapter 1, verses 14-15. through 15. Where James says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That word desire is the same word Paul uses here in 2 Timothy. He is to flee from his own youthful passions. So what does Paul mean by youthful passions? Well, we often use this verse in the context of sexual immorality... And contextually, it's really not focused on sexuality at all. Um, In a broad sense, it could include such desires as sexual immorality, but that does not seem to be its main focus. Rather, contextually, what Paul seems to be addressing are those desires that would often hinder um, one who is young in the faith from having an effective ministry or ministering well in and amidst false teaching and brokenness of the world. So many have speculated what is primary in in Paul's mind here. Um, Many have said, impatience with the old ways of thinking, a love of debate, tendency to seek human approval, oof, I feel that one, craving worldly success, jealousy, harshness, high self-esteem, an argumentative and self-assertive spirit, all of these which would be very um, realistic in the heart of one who is young in the faith. One who would be tempted to not live according to what is sound and true in Scripture, but one who would still be clinging to the old self. There are nearly endless lists given, and almost all of them can really be defended according to just the context immediately. And so, ultimately, what we can understand is that Paul warns Timothy of his fleshly desires that seek to wage war against his soul. And what would hinder him from ministering faithfully and well to the lost world around him and in his local setting. So, ultimately, those who are seeking to be useful, dear Timothy, one is to be cleansed. Well, this takes place through a process. A process of flight and pursuit. Paul's description of being cleansed is fleeing as if one that hunts me as prey is ever upon me. The useful servant of the Lord is a fleeing servant. And the question that I have to continually then ask in my soul is am I currently marked in my life by a death sprint from my fleshly pursuits, my fleshly passions? If my answer is no, then I ought to be very sober-minded. In realizing that the hunter has not ceased the pursuit. The tempter has not grown tired and decided to take a Sabbath to recoup. And is it possible that instead I've grown blind to my enemy? Has my sin been as a tick silently and undetectably feasting itself upon my soul? Have I called kitten what the Lord has called roaring lion? A brief comment. As I'm preparing for a sermon, I find it necessary to first rake the passage that I'm going to preach over and over in my own soul. And I like to interrogate myself with whether I am not or am living according to what the Lord is saying in the passage that I'm going to bring and present. The more than, uh, more than I would like to admit, I find it's very common that that passage is absolutely what the Lord is needing. To rebuke me first. And what I find more often than I would like to admit is that my soul, it tends to live according to the obedience and the faithfulness of the past rather than my present state. I think to myself, surely I can't be that bad. Surely I am living rightly enough, right? For I have repented, I've fled from sin. I have at one time had such intense, passionate hatred according to the flesh that wages war within me. Surely, I can't be that bad. To which every time I get up, I swear, it's like living it afresh. I'm reminded that my soul, in my soul, that this word is flee. And it is not a past tense word. It is a word that is past tense present and future it means flee and flee and flee and both flee and pursue are given in the command form meaning that Paul has no intent of making this optional for young Timothy i admit i struggle and i continually have to live in repentance of this because in job 38:11 the lord god tells the waves of the ocean you can come thus far and no farther and they obey In Matthew 8, 27, we're told that the ferocious waters and deadly winds will rise and fall in obedience to the word of God. And though the earth's waters are so vast in size that I could never lay eyes on all of them in a lifetime. Though the earth's waters could crush me in the turn of a wave, though they have rolled endlessly on the earth from the beginning and will until the end, I believe often that I am above them. For they hear the word of the Lord and rush to obey. And I stand back and think, surely this can't be speaking to me. I encourage you if you wish to be a vessel prepared for every good work. Don't think of yourself according to your faithfulness and love of the Lord of the past. Consider this day your current walk with the Lord. Is it one of fleeing of youthful passions? And pursuing what the Lord calls you to? Live in the mercy and grace, O believer, of repenting daily before the Lord. And experience afresh the gospel that has never ceased to be true. So what's the servant of the Lord to flee toward? What are we to pursue? Well, where lies the safe haven for the prey? It is here, Timothy. Pursue righteousness. Pursue faith, love, and peace. By this, Paul means a genuine Christian life is running after, one, a life of obedience to the Lord. Righteousness. A genuine relationship with God by the grace of Christ Jesus. Can I ever be pleasing to the Lord in my flesh? No. I stand on the sole basis of Christ and His righteousness. And now I'm called to live by faith in Him. A life of continual dying to self. In self-sacrificing service to others, love. And a constant pursuit of peacemaking within the house of God and amidst the broken world to which we are sent as reconcilers. Those who cry out, be reconciled to God. Peace, Timothy, pursue peace. We see a similar understanding of the life of a believer in Psalm 119, verse 9. That says, how can a young man keep his way pure? Meaning, one directed, focused upon one. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. This is a life oriented around, defined by, and submitted to, according one, according to one and one thing only. And that would be the word of God. This simply is a description of what loving the Lord with your whole heart is beholding him in his word and bending all of myself in loving submission to him. But that's not all. Paul goes on, because not only is one to cleanse himself or herself from fleeing from youthful passions, and this is meant to be done by pursuing a genuine and and, uh, faithful walk with him, But there's a manner in which it ought to be done. Along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. The life of one who is a useful vessel is a life lived in the light with others who are dependent and in pursuit of the master of the house. Why is this so? Well, I think Solomon, the wisest man to live, save for Christ himself... Has given us a clue. We read in Proverbs eighteen one: Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Oh we're not meant to be alone. We're not meant to be without the body. See Hebrews 3.13. Where we read. But exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today. That none of you may be hardened. By the deceitfulness of sin. As Pastor Jeff stated very eloquently last week. We cannot say we love Christ and hate the church. That's not a biblical category. There's no room in God's understanding, meaning the Bible, of a Christian that is not actively and intentionally invested in, ministering in, and being ministered to by the local church. One who is useful to the Lord is one who is a member of the body. It is as an arm cut from the body will cease to move. And a log kicked from the flames will burn not much longer. So what? What then? What does it look like to be pursuing a righteous walk, a genuine love of the Lord, by fleeing our fleshly passions? What does this look like? Well, Paul gets specific. As the epistles beautifully do, he writes, have nothing to do with foolish." ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. So he tells him what to avoid. Timothy is meant to be a minister of the word of God. Thus, he cannot be caught up in the worldly debates of his age. What does Paul mean by this? Well, he's number one, not talking about the fact that we do not need to make important distinctions and clarifications about the word of God. In fact, this is actually the very, one of the very things he's sent to do, as we will see in verse 25. Timothy is meant to correct in correct teaching. It's not as though he's not supposed to fight for sound doctrine. No, I think what we actually get a good taste of what Paul's after here is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3-4. through 4, When he says this, As I urged you when I was in Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Why? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So Paul is not telling Timothy that he just needs to get along with everyone. That it doesn't really matter what anyone teaches, because we all need to just seek to be on common ground. That's not what he says. It's not just saying that we need to agree with anyone who says the name Jesus when they're talking about spiritual things. Paul is telling Timothy not to fight about other words, non-biblical words, endless genealogies and myths. He says, Timothy, don't be enticed in debate, debating these worldly ph- philosophies and teachings. Timothy, the arguments about the government are not worth pursuing. The proposals of the ancient psychologies about the enticing extra-biblical speculations of his time. Paul is saying, you're not there for that. You're a minister of... The word. So what is Timothy to do? He is meant to focus on defending the word. Verse 24, Paul goes on. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. He is indeed the Lord's servant, and Paul seeks to remind him of that. Paul says, Oh, forget not, dear Timothy, of whom you are a slave to. Forget not, dear Timothy, that you do not own you. For prior to God's grace, I was owned by the power of the prince of the air, and now I have been bought with a price. I have been redeemed from the power of sin and death, and I have been made a slave of righteousness, freed from slavery to sin. Here Paul tells Timothy, he is not a pastor for himself. No husband is a husband for his wife. A child is not a child for their parents. A worker is not a worker for their boss. A mother is not a mother for her children. And all and every servant of Christ, in whatever role they may find themselves, they live in that role, not for themselves nor any other living being, but they are in that role to serve the Lord God himself. I do not answer to my wife. In how I am a husband, I answer to my God. Remember who you are, Timothy. Who you belong to. Colossians 3, 22 through 24 says it this way. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. A poet once said it this way. My heart, my all, My life, my soul, my wants, my role, all now is his. The one become my all in all. All of me, all of you, Timothy, remember who you belong to. So how does one serve the Lord in the role that they find themselves in? Paul here gives us six marks. Six marks of the faithful servant of the Lord. The servant who, being cleansed through being a fugitive of his sin in constant flight. The servant that pursues the safe haven of genuine and a pure walk with the Lord. That servant, that servant is a useful, Lord, uh, is a useful vessel to his Lord. This brings us to point three. Those who wish to be useful to God by fleeing from sin and pursuing him will begin to bear six marks of a faithful servant. Mark number one. Must not be quarrelsome. A useful servant is not one whose desire and love is being right, reveling on proving my knowledge or my ability to argue, the being pugnacious, meaning arrogant and angry, and arrogantly spouting my own opinion with no shred of humility. This desire is the antithesis, the opposite of the heart of the servant that we will see in just one more verse. The Lord's servant, mark number one, is not quarrelsome. They don't get excited to get to bite out at the back of another person. Mark number two, kind to everyone. Kind is a tough word to define because it means a bunch of good ones. This doesn't mean agreeing with everyone. This does not mean running around and doing everything that anyone may ask you. It does not mean being the person who will affirm the one bit of good from the sludge field of someone's false teaching. Kind has the meaning of a mildness of temper. Calmness of spirit. An unruffled disposition. And a deep warmth and care for others. Here Paul throws out that self-oriented person that believes that if he yells the Bible louder than someone else's opinion, he is being faithful. Forget not that the anger of man will never produce the righteousness of God. My aggression will never make the offensive gospel seem um, less offensive. Rather, my anger will make the already offensive gospel seem utterly rejectable. Because rather than seeing Jesus Christ in his gospel coming for sinners, they see me. And in my anger, I'm a raging heap of anger. A ball of flesh and sin. This simply means that as a sweet pastor of mine used to say, our creed is over, only ever conv- as convincing as our conduct. Our creed is only ever as convincing as, As our conduct. How I speak the truth matters. How I speak the truth matters to the Lord. And so Paul tells us the manner in which. We are to interact with others. And it needs to be saturated. With an attitude of meekness. Gentleness and humility. Mark number three. Able to teach. Here's in essence what that means. A servant of the Lord needs to know. What they believe. They need to know why they believe it and they need to be willing to answer the Lord's sovereign opportunities. I'm going to leave it at that. No believer is ever called to not be able to teach. Mark number four. Patiently enduring evil. Oh, what could be said of this? I'm going to entrust that a lot of us have been hearing about this. And so I'm going to try and keep this brief. 1 Peter 2, 21-23 says it this way. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly of this verse. John MacArthur says, the effective servant of the Lord is not concerned about justifying or vindicating himself, but about serving the Lord without bitterness, vengeance or anger, and in graciousness, kindness, and patience. This is patiently enduring evil. It, that is the heart of one who's not concerned with their own comfort or their own happiness Because they're utterly focused on serving the master of the house. If I long to be used by the Lord, I will inevitably suffer. I will be subject to great evil and bear watching much foulness in the church and the world. And the Lord says, through Paul to Timothy, Timothy, if you wish to be a useful vessel, you must be patient. Long suffering as you bear evil. That's not an easy one. And this is one I greatly struggle with. Mark number five a faithful vessel, a useful vessel, will correct his opponent. People who love Christ have the responsibility to correct. Not on Facebook and Twitter, not in a verbal bomb drop but to the broken world, we have a duty to proclaim the truth of the gospel as is found in the Great Commission. To our brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the responsibility to correct and speak truth in love to them, according to Ephesians chapter 4. And firstly, to our own soul, we are to constantly speak the truth in order to correct our continual bent toward error, as we see in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. But we're not just to correct. There's a manner in which we're called to go about it. Mark number six. With gentleness. Truth must be spoken. Yet only ever is truth as it ought to be. When it's spoken in gentleness. This is to Timothy. Even in speaking about correcting the false teachers within his own church. It is with gentleness that a vessel corrects in a useful way. First Thessalonians 2 verse 7 gives us a bit of a picture of what Paul looked like in this sense. But we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Doesn't that just feel like a hug? <laughs> oh, the word. It is an offensive gospel. And a beautiful, beautiful, redeeming gospel. Minister it usefully, Timothy, says Paul. So the Lord's servant, to be a useful vessel, must be a servant that speaks correction and gentleness. Why? Well, the true servant is not quarrelsome, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting their importance and gentleness. Why? Verse 25b, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Here Paul sets our thinking. Here is when we see the end of the matter. The motivation behind it all. What is the ultimate focus of those who are seeking to be useful? Why do those who wish to be useful bear with evil? Because those who have been saved by the grace of God are filled up and poured out in the grace of God to fellow sinners. Because the all-sovereign Lord who is in heaven and no one may stay his hand has invited worthless sinners redeemed vessels into the angel-captivating, God-glorifying process of saving sinners. And it is through his gospel. It's the Lord who saves. Salvation is from the Lord. Take great comfort in that, those of you who long for that person to come. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved, not of works of man, that none may boast. The useful vessel understands the sovereignty of God in salvation. Here we see the truth of those who are also written of as our enemies. Why do I correct my enemy with gentleness? Well, it's not because I serve the Lord and not man, though that's a part It's not only because my anger can never produce righteousness, though that is true. It's not only because that soul belongs to God, and so I'm called to treat that soul according to how he tells me, though that is true. But it's also because that sorrowful soul is one captured by Satan to do his will. I am gentle to my enemy because God's response to me in my rebellion was to send the one that is meek. To send the one that is meek, gentle, long-suffering, and abounding in steadfast love. And I am now free from slavery to sin, which I watch as they are caught in, and I ought to be able to look at any soul bound and biting in the grips of hell. And I ought to have so much empathy. Because their actions are but a mirror showing me afresh who I have been. And their ways show me to be far worse ever. For I have treated that way the glorious, gentle, and kind King of creation. The one who speaks to the waves and they bow. Be of such great courage. Those who seek to be faithful. When that person seems like they will never come to know the Lord. When that person makes such a loud ruckus of lies and false teaching. And it seems as though the whole world goes right along with it. When it seems as though there is no hope for the Lord to actually be glorified. No hope for people to see truth. No hope for hearts to be changed and for relationships to be mended. Recall often to mind. Who has the hearts of all the earth in his hand? Proverbs 21.1 says it this way, Even the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. You're not alone in this dear friend who seeks to be faithful. The Lord desires for those you love to know him more than you could ever wish for. You're not told to storm impenetrable walls by your own strength. It is the Lord who will work, and amazingly, he even desires to welcome you into that process as a useful vessel. The great physician intends to use his people as a scalpel. None of the surgery is up to their strength, but they must merely be faithful and useful to his beautiful work. Paul reminds us, as he reminded Timothy, That our hearts ought to be welling with compassion. Even towards the worst of the false teachers in Timothy's time. His goal in correcting them is never to stand right. But that they might experience the grace that he has. He uses vessels. And he may grant them the gift of repentance. Isn't it amazing that he uses vessels as us? Those that are seeking to be useful vessels ought to flee youthful passions, pursuing a genuine walk with him according to his word. What are you to do at work? What are you to do in your home, with your spouse, with your children, with your friends, with your government, with your enemy, with your parents, and on and on and on the list goes. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponent with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Oh, that they might come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You have your orders, those of you who seek to be faithful. What are you to do when all of the noise is overwhelming and there's no clarity in what's next? Seek to be a useful vessel that the Lord may do the work he already intends to do. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that it tells us explicitly how we are called to walk. Lord, you tell us that you change us from the inside out. You grant us your Holy Spirit, the power at work to even allow us to desire to obey you. And then you tell us how to follow him. Lord, I thank you for your local church. Lord, that we are not in this alone, but as a log amidst many fires are called to bear alongside with one another, speaking the truth in love, correcting one another with gentleness. Lord, I pray that you would give us a faith like a child not meaning we don't need to understand that we don't need to know your word, but the faith of a child as a daughter will sit upon her father's shoulders, beholding the glorious stars above and believe every word he says as he describes their vast and bright reality. Lord, may you make us hear your word and bow as the waves do. Lord, give us faithfulness, Grant repentance, Lord, to those who are in the midst of us who do not walk with you. Lord, we pray that your word would cut as a beautiful and healing scalpel to those who are not in Christ and to those who are in Christ and yet wish to walk in rebellion. Lord, might you redeem your useful vessels and make us all ministers of reconciliation to the lost and broken and needy world about us. And may we do it by every step of walking in step with your spirit that is already at work within us and in those you call to yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.